great to see everyone and uh, even see some faces. I like that. Yeah, a little response here. Yeah. And uh, boy, you know, it's, we've learned flexibility, haven't we? Just being able to kind of move inside on a moment's notice. Anyway, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it took a week off last week for Mother's Day, but we are back in the Gospel of Mark and we're looking at, uh, at God's perfect timing uh, from the last half of Mark chapter 5. You know, here in America, I think we like our fast food. Um, I don't think I've ever gone by In-N-Out Burger or Chick-fil-A without there being a line. There's always a line of cars there. Um, we like our microwave ovens. I mean, I, 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 you might not have one, but I, I know most people do. I know we do. We like it fast. Uh, we don't like to wait in line. We're, I think as a culture, we're just not very patient. Um, we seem to be in a hurry a lot. And I think that bleeds over into our spiritual lives. Uh, we're in a hurry. We want God to answer our prayers now. And what God wants to teach us is to wait on him. And those two things are in conflict with each other. I, I heard this definition of patience. That I think it's pretty good. That patience is accepting a difficult situation as being from God and not giving him a deadline to remove it. So is there a situation right now where you've given God a deadline? Or you're tempted to? This is really an account, I think, of God's perfect timing. You can't hurry Jesus. Uh, if you're taking notes, this is on your outline. It's in his life on earth you always see Jesus being very patient and very deliberate. Patient and deliberate. The Gospels never give an account of Jesus running anywhere. Both of these stories that we're going to look at teach us some powerful lessons, especially when we feel like God isn't acting uh, like we want him to be at work in our lives, like we want him to act. It was Thomas Cranmer, a leader in the English Reformation, who wrote the following, Lord, grant that we may follow the example of Jesus' patience. So here's what we see in the passage, and this is at the top of the outline. These verses have an account within another account. It begins with Jairus asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter, and it is interrupted by a suffering woman, and ends with Jairus again. It's like a sandwich structure you will. As we saw in chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 already, we see Jesus caring for those in need. We see him as the all-powerful God that he is, God the Son. In Mark chapters 4 and 5, we see Jesus with authority over nature and demons and disease and even death. So we're going to read the passage a little bit as it happens. I'll read the First part of the, the bottom of the Oreo cookie first, and then we'll read the middle, and then we'll read the top. Uh, so, starting at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet 
and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. We're gonna stop right there for now. So the first thing you have on your outline is that we come by faith to Jesus with our requests. But he requests that he wants us to come and give our request to him in faith. So faith is belief plus unbelief plus acting on the belief. In other words, there's always unbelief, I think, mixed in. There will almost always be some doubt mixed in with our faith because we're human. And we have an example of this in Jairus. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, kind of like a lay president, if you will, who goes to find Jesus. His daughter is knocking on death's door. He is desperate. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. His daughter, his little daughter is at the point of death. And the language he uses isn't that she might die, but it's more like she is about to die. So the implication is she's going to die, Jesus, unless you come and heal her. And I know you can. Luke tells us this is, the, this, is this man's only daughter. So Jairus, this is on your outline, came to Jesus because he believed that Jesus could do for him what no one else could do. His request was straight, was to the point. It was urgent. Uh, verse 23, he implored Jesus earnestly. You can underline that in your Bibles. That's what he did. And that's what we should do when we pray. We should implore Jesus earnestly. The idea is that he was beside himself as he begged. You know, if you're feeling desperate, and, and the, there can be levels of desperation. We can be terribly desperate or we can be kind of desperate. Let me assure you that your circumstances have not escaped the Lord Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. And so whether it's joblessness or it, maybe it's a disease or an illness, maybe it's, it's a, a financial situation, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a, a child that you see making bad decisions, Whatever circumstance in your life where you feel you are headed for disaster and you're powerless to change anything, look at your desperation as a gift from God. Because that's when we become, when we, it's when we become really desperate that we're ready to exchange what we want for whatever God wants. And that's exactly where God wants us to be to want what he wants, to desire his will above all else. Even when we don't get what we want, we begin to know God more intimately at that point in our lives. And the next thing we see in this passage is that Jesus responds to our pain. That's number two on the outline. Jesus responds to our pain. In verse 24, and he went with him. Wow, wow. Jesus goes with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He is with us. And when Jesus agrees to go with Jairus, Jairus had to be so excited and at the same time nervous that they were going to be too late. He knew he, he, he was desperate. And the crowd follows because they want to see another miracle. 
You have to imagine a huge crowd of people all around Jesus that weren't allowing Jesus to move very fast. I can imagine Jairus. If I were him, I would be running interference. Okay, move back. We're on our way somewhere. Make room for Jesus. And then, out of nowhere, this woman touches him. And this woman has been sick with a blood disease for 12 years. And she's, it says she spent all of her money trying to get better. And it only made things worse. Let's pick it up at verse 24. Follow along in your Bibles. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had. And she was no better. But rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And came up behind him in the crowd. And touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, we're gonna stop there again. This is the middle of the sandwich. So as Westerners reading this, we think about the physical issues that she had this disease. But there were huge social and religious things going on here at the same time because her bleeding would not, she was unclean. And that meant by Jewish law that she could not go into the temple to worship. And she hears about this miracle worker, Jesus. And she had enough faith to believe that if she touched even his clothing, that she would be healed. You know, there were hundreds around him and, and this one woman connected with him. Look at verse 30. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Now, this is the first time that the Greek word dynamos, power, is used in the Gospel of Mark. Imagine that power. Imagine that. She touches Jesus, and immediately she knows she's healed. First time in 12 years. 12 years. And verse 30 says that immediately she, Jesus immediately turned around the crowd and said, who touched my garments? So as, as Jairus is talking, as, as Jesus is talking to this woman, imagine Jairus. And he's saying, oh my gosh, Lord, this is, she's had this problem 12 years. She can live another day with this problem. Have her follow, deal with her after you deal with my daughter. Now on the other hand, Jairus' daughter's situation was it was desperate. This woman had a persistent problem over years. There's definitely some anguish going on here with Jairus. And this is on your outline. Jesus will not be hurried. He's never in a hurry. He seems to be spending, though, way too long for Jairus talking to this woman. And the woman wanted to be healed. She came up from behind, remember? She wanted to be healed and then fade into the crowd. But Jesus forces her to come public with her healing. 
She was probably horrified at that. And his question, who touched my garments, I think that's a really key question here because it's Jesus' way of reaching out to this woman to find out so, so that she wouldn't remain anonymous. He wanted to connect with her more than just heal her. It's worth noting here, I think, some of the similarities between Jairus and between this woman, whose name we don't know. They both knew that only Jesus could help them. They both knew that they were unworthy. They both fell down before Jesus. And both of them knew Jesus had the power to heal. She thought it was her touching Jesus' garment that healed her, but Jesus corrects her. In verse 36, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And, and the disciples were skeptical about this whole thing. They're like, Lord, who touched you? Who didn't touch you? You're in a big crowd of people. But they couldn't have been aware of the supernatural flow of power that came out of Jesus. And meanwhile, this, this woman must have been super embarrassed, and she's, she's been called out. Look at verse 33 again. She comes in fear and trembling and falls down before Jesus. And she tells the whole truth. She can't help herself. And she probably thought Jesus was going to rebuke her. But look at verse 34. What does he call her? Daughter. And I think that's key to understanding this passage. If you are in the habit of underlining in your Bible, you might want to underline that word daughter. Highlight that. Because to follow the custom of the day, Jesus would have called her woman. That was the, the equivalent of ma'am in the first century. But daughter is such a familiar term. It's the same term that Jairus used for referring to his daughter in verse 23. So verse 34, the, the term translated made you well, and I think this is really key too to understanding this passage, is literally the Greek word sozo, which means to save. And so I, I think that in the second part of the verse, the focus seems to be on the physical healing. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. But in the first part, I think the, the point is that there's been a spiritual healing in her life as well. That's why Jesus wanted to connect with her, not just let the power go out of him and let her fade into the crowd. He wanted to have a personal connection with her. In other words, she received physical healing from Jesus but she also received something way more. She received spiritual healing from Jesus. She was free now from sin, not just from this flow of blood that wouldn't stop. And this is the difference between someone who just wants to be known as religious, maybe in the best of ways, and someone who really wants to know Jesus and have a, be a, have a discipleship relationship with them. This is the difference between someone uh, who, who doesn't really care that much, just wants enough religion maybe to make them miserable. That's what I feel like a, a lot of people have. And then to really know and, and, and know the power of Jesus in their lives. And this is on your outline. It's like Jesus is saying to all of us, not just to the, but to, but to each of us, don't just come to have your needs met. Come to me to have your life transformed. That's why Jesus wants us to come to him. The Bible's not given to us just to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. 
And calling her out, Jesus definitely took that woman out of her comfort zone. But at the same time, she got way more than she expected. Jesus may ask more from you than you want to give, but in return, you're going to get far more from him than you ever thought possible. You know, I talked to someone in the church yesterday uh, who recently volunteered to do something they didn't think they were gifted at. And uh, they said to me, uh, they sent me a text actually, and the text said, you know, I'm actually beginning to like this ministry. It goes to prove that if you're just, and this is what they wrote, if you're just obedient to God's call, he will change your heart and give you joy as he does it. It's like, wow, so cool. You know, where do you need to get out of your comfort zone? Are you serving, are you in, serving somewhere? Are you in a ministry? As we want everyone to be doing something for the kingdom. And, and you might say, well, I, you know, there's nothing I'm really comfortable with. Well, that's okay. Do something you're uncomfortable with. Watch God give you the power to do it. You know, we talked about the similarities between Jairus and the woman, but there are also some contrasts between the two of them. Jairus is a man of, who had power. He was a leader in the synagogue. This woman had no power whatsoever. She was ceremonially unclean. She wasn't able to even go and worship. Can you imagine if someone told you that you're so hopeless, you can't even go to church? That you're so hopeless that God doesn't even care about you? God wants nothing to do with you? That's this woman. She's at the very bottom. Jairus is at the top. He had servants. He had means. He was wealthy. He had a home. This woman has nothing. And I think the lesson here for us is don't wait until you've reached the bottom, until you've lied to yourself in such a way to say that things are hopeless for you. And if you, this is on your outline, if you feel like your situation is hopeless, like you've convinced yourself that God doesn't care for you, and people have told you you're not going to make it, come to Jesus. He's always ready to receive you. And yet Jesus treats this woman, this outsider, with the same dignity that he treats the president of the synagogue. Jesus, Jairus wouldn't have known that Jesus really in reality didn't have to choose between his daughter and this woman. He's not restricted to time or distance or circumstances. We just have to remember that God will accomplish his purposes on his timetable, not on ours. We're selfish. We're impatient. We think it's all about us. It's not. It's not about us. We hate delays, though. And what we learn from Jesus and the cross is that the way to live a resurrected life is that we have to die to ourselves. It's not an easy thing to do. It's something we have to do every day. Jesus doesn't come to anyone on the basis of their status. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus seems to gravitate to those who are pretty messed up. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. 
God shows the world the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God shows things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing the, what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You know, whatever God seems to be delaying, his grace, in a way that you don't understand, you have to remember that we don't see things the way God does. I think of that with this pandemic. You know, we have, we're, we're thinking, God, what are you doing? Oh, he's got it all under control. He knows exactly what he's doing. God always says, you know, when things don't turn out the way you want them to, there are always some critical factors that you're not aware of. That I am, God says. Maybe you're ready to give up. Maybe you're mad at God. Maybe you're thinking, why doesn't God heal me now? I know he can. And God says, trust me. You only see the pieces of the puzzle. You only see a few pieces of the puzzle. I see the picture on the front. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm making you into a Christ-like person. I want you, I'm making you into a person who will glorify me for the rest of your life in the best way. And then we come to Jairus, back to Jairus, the top of the Oreo now, and we see, number three, that Jesus has authority over death. You know, if I were Jairus, I'd be beside myself in anxiety and frustration because my daughter's at death's door and Jesus is talking to a woman that he's already healed. I would be saying to Jesus, let it go. Come on, let's go. And when things for Jairus seem to go from bad to worse here, Jesus was ready to continue on his way to Jairus' home when bad news arrives that his daughters died. For Jairus' hope is gone. What is faith? Faith is belief plus unbelief plus acting on the belief. And this is the unbelief part. But it's as if Jesus says to Jairus right here, hey, despite all the circumstances and all the appearances, I'm not distracted. And I haven't forgotten about your need. I work in my time, not in anyone else's time. And I'm not in a hurry. Just keep believing, Jairus, and watch what I do. And we can't miss this lesson here. This is on your outline, that God's grace, his work in our lives, his, the answers to prayer he does give us almost never seem to go according to our schedule. I think when Jesus looks at Jairus and says to trust him, it's like he's looking at all of us and he's saying the same thing. Trust me. What he's teaching us here is that his delays are his power at work in our lives. It's his power orchestrating things for his glory. And by his power, Jesus is not saying, I'm not in a hurry, but I love you anyway. No, he's saying, I'm not in a hurry because I love you. I'm delaying because I love you. That's how we need to see his delays. I think all of us have it about some situation in our lives responded like Jairus with unbelief. 
And Jesus almost always gives us, though, more than we're expecting. Jairus comes to Jesus for a cure for his daughter's fever, and we know that he got a resurrection instead. That's pretty cool. So let's pick it up at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give the girl something to eat. She's hungry. She's been dead a while. Give her something to eat. (laughs) Jesus arrives, and knowing the first century culture, he was expecting these professional mourners to be there. And they were. They were loud. You know, we were talking about this yesterday, and Kathy asked me, and I said, you know, this was just something that was real common in the first century. I had no idea. Uh, The United States has a small industry of professional mourners. Yes, it's true. A recent TV show, this is a quote, highlighted the ways a Texas funeral home hires and trains mourners. Looking for a job? and trains them to appeal to those wanting larger funerals. The image of having a crowd of people attending a funeral is still in demand. They pay between 30 and $180 an hour. I guess the $180 have it perfected uh, in some way. I don't know for sure what that means. But, and they can do up to two funerals a day. I was shocked when I read this. I was like, no way. And this is kind of all over the world, in, in Europe and... Uh, It is very common still in in Asia, in the Middle East. But Jesus walks in and says she's really sleeping. And this gets a laugh from the people because they know she's dead. She's not apparently dead. She's dead. These are professionals, professional mourners. They know she's dead. And then Jesus says two things to the little girl. He takes her hand and he says, Talitha, which translates means little girl. It's like a pet name, though. It's not like a a descriptive name, little girl. It's more like the idea of little lady. Or maybe a modern translation would be what you would call your daughter, honey, or sweetheart, or uh, whatever you would call her. And then then the second thing he says is kumi, which means arise, get up. So Jesus was saying to her what her parents would say to her on any day of the week. They would take her hand and they would say, honey, it's time to get up. That's really the best translation of what Jesus says. Jesus is saying to us, 
If I have you by the hand, even if death itself is in the midst of what you're going through, it's like a good night's sleep. In fact, death for a Christian only makes life better, right? That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and die is more Christ. You know, we celebrated yesterday right in here the, the passing of one of our dear saints, Ted Svensson. And we're celebrating today the passing of, a, of, our, of our founding pastor, another great saint, Ray Hahn. They are having their best lives ever right now in the presence of the Lord. Wow, what a joy that is. And another thing we can't miss here <clears throat> is, is Jesus' love. In the best of ways, and this is on your outline, he is the ultimate parent. You know, Kathy and I were watching a movie the other night, and uh, this little girl was in a crowd with her mom, and they got separated, and she never could find her mom. This little girl ended up on a park bench, curled up in the fetal position and just crying, and stayed that way until the police came and got her and, and took her to her grandmother's home, the address that, that she knew. And boy, nothing pulls on your heartstrings like that. It's just so hard. You know, when we're little, we have this false idea that if we have our parents' hand, nothing can happen to us. That's not true. There are bad parents. There are good parents that make bad decisions, even though they're trying their best. But just like he did with this woman, he calls her daughter... Jesus calls the woman that had the blood disease daughter. Jairus calls her, his daughter, daughter. And Jesus calls her in this affectionate way, honey, it's time to get up. And Jesus does that with us even when we've messed up. He still has us by the hand. And you know how we know all this is because of the cross. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says he was crucified in weakness, yet by God's power, we will live. Jesus became weak, and this is on your outline, so that we could be strong. Jesus died for you. He went into the tomb so that we could be raised out of it. And in a sense, Jesus lost his father's hand on the cross so that we could know that he has us by the hand and will never, ever let us go. Jesus knew that the only way to the crown was through the cross. The only way to the resurrection was that he had to die first. And that's, that's what we can learn when we think God is delaying. We think of Jesus, we think of the cross. That was the ultimate delay. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray? Lord, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? Can we just skip right to the resurrection from here? And God's answer was no, we have to go through the cross. And so we need to have confidence in God that if we take him by the hand and let him do what he wants in his time, that it will be best for us. God's timing is always perfect. Think about it. Let's pray. Lord, will you grant that we may follow the example of Jesus' patience? Thank you for this account of Jesus' life that shows us with such clarity that you love us so tenderly and yet so powerfully. Remind all of us, Lord, that no matter what it is we're going through, that you have us by the hand. 
We praise you for your power and your love. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you personally, that would they just respond by faith right now to you? You're drawing them to yourself. You're drawing us all closer to yourself. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it.